Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church, the show where we harvest the fruits of the last week on the Vatican, the global Catholic Church beat. Now, if you watch this show regularly, you know that normally we have four, five, sometimes as many as six or seven stories that we traipse through. This past week, however, there have really been only three mega stories, huge narratives worth plumbing at some depth. So here's what we've got for you this week. We're going to begin with Of Trial and Tribulations. The Vatican's trial of the century finally came in for a landing this past Saturday. We're going to explain what happened, what might happen from here, and why it all matters. Secondly, we've got Gazing on Gaza, an attack on the Catholic parish, the lone Catholic parish on the Gaza Strip, has opened yet another new chapter in the story of the tensions between the Vatican and Israel and the broader tensions regarding the Catholic response to the ongoing war on the Gaza Strip. We'll explain what happened and what various parties are saying about it. And finally this week, we've got You say it's your birthday. It's my birthday too, yeah. Pope Francis on Sunday turned 87, becoming the third oldest reigning pope in the entire history of the Catholic Church. We'll explain what the latest is on the papal health front and where the Francis papacy may go from here. All that, really no more, just that, but it's a lot, is waiting for you on this episode of Last Week in the Church. So please, for the love of God, in the name of all that is holy, don't go anywhere because I swear to you, you're not going to want to miss this. We will be right back. Crux wishes to thank our advertising sponsor, Pushpay, for supporting Crux and this episode of Last Week in the Church. If your parish wants to increase giving, deepen engagement, and fulfill its mission, then Pushpay's all-in-one digital solution, Parish Stack, is what you need. Learn more at pushpay.com. Hi there, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. Thank you for joining us. Before we dive into this week's news, just a quick programming note. The next two Mondays, which is the day we normally film this show, are Christmas and New Year's. So we're going to skip those. Our next show, therefore, will debut on Tuesday, January 9th in the new year of our Lord, 2024. I am absolutely confident by that point we will have a bushel, bushel basket full of Vatican news to talk about. So please be paying attention. But before we break for the holidays, we have got mammoth, epical, like huge Vatican news to talk about. We begin with trial and tribulations. So the Vatican's long-running trial of the century finally, finally wrapped up this past Saturday, December 16th, with verdicts. Now, let's just set the scene for all of this. This, of course, is the trial that pivoted on a controversial purchase by the Vatican Secretary of State of a piece of property in London in the posh neighborhood of Chelsea, a former Herod's warehouse that was slated for conversion into luxury apartments in a period 
that began in 2014 and stretched until late 2018, the Vatican spent all in about $400 million buying this property. It eventually sold it for about $260 million, a little less than that, which means it took a bath to the tune of about $150 million. On the back of that, an investigation was triggered, which eventually ended up with the indictment of 10 individuals, including for the very first time a cardinal of the Catholic Church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu. Becciu, by the way, was indicted not merely for his role in that London transaction, but also two other unrelated incidents. One, having to do with the transfers of about $250,000 to a Catholic charity on the island of Sardinia, where he is from. This charity is run by his brother Antonio. And the other having to do with outlays of about $600,000 of Vatican money for the liberation of a Colombian missionary nun who had been kidnapped in the African nation of Mali by Islamic militants and who was eventually liberated. And allegedly, some of that money, which Bechu had funneled through a friend of his, an Italian laywoman and self-described security consultant by the name of Cecilia Maronia, some of that money was allegedly spent by, by Maronia on luxury goods for herself, including the purchase of several Louis Vuitton handbags. All right, so those were the charges. Now, as I said, these verdicts finally, after two and a half years, after 85 separate court hearings stretching over about 600 hours of courtroom time, after the hearing of 69 witnesses, after the production of about 150,000 pages of documents, finally, we got verdicts. The three-judge panel adjudicating this case found nine of the 10 defendants guilty. Bechu was found guilty on all three of the charges facing him. He was sentenced to five years and six months in prison. Eight of the nine other defendants were also found guilty, sentenced to various terms in prison and fines. All in, it was a total of about 37 years in prison for the eight of the nine defendants. The only one who was completely exonerated was an Italian priest by the name of Mauro Carlini, who was the former private secretary to Becciu. Today, he is a simple parish priest in the Diocese of Lecce. Everyone else was found guilty of at least something. All in, the prosecution had asked for about 73 years in prison for everybody. They got 37, which is about half of what they had asked for. So, one level, the question is, is this what we might have expected? Well, look, I mean, at one level, I think it's pretty much exactly what we would have expected. I think, politically speaking, the idea that this prosecution would have stretched over two and a half years and involved, God knows, how much time and treasure, but ended in nothing, ended in a statement of, oops, sorry, nobody actually did anything wrong, and we regret having launched this, that was never going to happen, okay? So the fact that 
most of the defendants were found guilty of at least something, that probably is not a huge surprise. On the other hand, it is, from a historical point of view, a kind of breathtaking result because, let's face it, this has never happened before. It has never happened before that a cardinal of the Catholic Church was forced to stand in the dock before a tribunal of lay prosecutors and lay judges who were in a position to pronounce on whether he had committed crimes and who, in the end, found him guilty and sentenced him to jail time. So, I mean, this has never happened before. And when you're dealing with an institution, i.e. the Catholic Church, that has more than 2,000 years of history under its belt, and you can say with absolute confidence that this is unprecedented, never happened before, that's a big deal, okay? Where does all this go from here? Well, let's just tick off three quick points. One, this trial, this process is not over because as with any legal system, the defendants have the right of appeal. Attorneys for Cardinal Bechu have announced that they are going to appeal. It is entirely possible that some of the other defendants may do so. Their deadline, by the way, for announcing their intention to appeal is today. So we should know in fairly short order who else plans to appeal this verdict. There is a court of appeals for the Vatican City State that will hear this case. It is composed of three clerics and three lay jurists. If that court of appeals were to reach a different conclusion from the tribunal that announced its verdicts on Saturday, then theoretically the case could end up before the Vatican City State Supreme Court. It's known as the Corte di Cassazione, the Cassation Court, which is led by American Cardinal Kevin Farrell and three other cardinals along with two lay jurists, which means we may actually be months, if not years, away from getting a final resolution in this case. So, you know, I suppose the message there is hold your horses. Second, it is worth noting that in the verdicts that were handed down last Saturday, the Vatican Tribunal not only sentenced various parties to prison, but they also ordered the confiscation of about $180 million in assets belonging to the defendants and various entities controlled by the defendants. They also imposed about $220 million in fines. Now, if the Vatican actually wants any of that money, they're going to have to rely on the cooperation of other states because all of that money, it's not deposited in the Vatican Bank. It's not directly under Vatican control. Most of that money is either in Switzerland or the UK. And therefore, the Vatican would need its verdicts to be recognized by those foreign countries. And to be frank, up to this point, the Vatican has a pretty mixed track record in terms of being able to persuade foreign courts that its verdicts should be recognized. They have had some success in Switzerland, much less success in the UK. We'll have to see how all of that plays out. And then third, there is also the possibility that at some point along the way, there might also be a papal intervention to grant either a pardon or to at least commute the sentences. In the past, when people have been convicted of criminal offenses by the Vatican Tribunal, that's what's happened. You may remember in 2012, 
when the butler of Pope Benedict XVI, Paolo Gabriele, was convicted of leaking confidential documents that he had stolen off the Pope's desk to journalists. He was sentenced to 18 months in prison. The Pope gave him a pardon. In 2016, Spanish Monsignor Lucio Vallejo Balda, who was also convicted of passing confidential documents to journalists, in this case under Pope Francis, not Pope Benedict, he was also sentenced to 18 months in prison by a Vatican tribunal. The Pope in that case decided not to pardon Balda, but to give him, well, to commute his sentence. So that is, he basically set the sentence aside without extinguishing it, so it remained on his record but he didn't actually have to do any time in jail. So, you know, all of these things are possibilities. We are going to have to see how all this plays out. Now, bottom line, however, is that while we wait to see whether Beichu or anyone else involved in this affair actually ever does any jail time, the real verdict that still has to come in isn't so much whether Beichu or anybody else was innocent or guilty. The real verdict is about the process itself. What this trial has done is open a debate about the leadership of Pope Francis. On the one side would be fans, supporters, allies of Pope Francis, who see this trial as a milestone in the Pope's campaign for reform ushering in a new era of accountability in which no one is beyond the law. Preeminent in that camp would be the Pope's editorial director, veteran Italian journalist Andrea Tornielli, who published an essay five minutes after the verdicts came in Saturday night, in which he said, this proves that the Pope is committed to fairness, due process of law, that this trial protected the rights of everyone, and was just a model of the effective administration of justice. Now, on the other side, would be critics who say that what this actually was, was a kind of farce, a kangaroo court, in which a pope, who was both the supreme executive and judicial authority in the Vatican City state, basically stacked the deck in favor of the prosecution from the very beginning, and therefore got the result that he bought and paid for at the end. Now, in that universe, there are a number of voices. One we might cite is a veteran Rome-based Chilean journalist by the name of Luis Bedilla, who ran up until just 24 hours ago, a widely read website known as Il Sismografo, the seismograph. Badila, shortly after the verdicts came in, published an essay in which he said that this verdict was completely unreliable. He said that the whole thing was a paper mache exercise from the very beginning, intended to do nothing other than make Pope Francis look good. And he said, that the problem here is not whether Beichu did anything wrong. The problem here is that in the Vatican, the system of justice is entirely subject to the personal caprice and whims of the pontiff. And until that situation is fixed, you can't really trust any result that the system comes up with. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the great debate that this trial has opened up. 
And while the verdicts in the trial may be in, the jury is still out on this broader question, which is going to be settled not by a papally appointed panel of three judges, but by the court of popular opinion. That's our situation. All right, second up this week, gazing at Gaza. So on Saturday, late on Saturday night, the Latin patriarch of Jerusalem, led by uh, Italian Cardinal Pier Battista Pizzaballa, issued a statement denouncing what they described as an attack on the lone Catholic parish in Gaza, that is the parish of the Holy Family, where from the beginning of the Israeli-Hamas war, roughly 600 people or so have been taking shelter. According to the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem, snipers who belong to the Israeli Defense Forces fired on the parish, killing two people, two women, named Nadira and Samara, mother and daughter. And according to the statement from the Latin Patriarchate, one of them died after being shot while trying to rescue the other who had been shot. Again, according to that statement, seven other people were wounded. Separately, tank attacks on the compound where the parish is located are also said to have destroyed a generator that was being used by a convent belonging to the nuns of Mother Teresa, the missionaries of charity, who were caring for 54 disabled people, essentially rendering the convent uninhabitable. According to the statement from the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem, these two women had been killed in cold blood, and they described the broader assault on the parish compound as essentially unconscionable. Pope Francis picked up on this in his Sunday Angelus address, describing what was happening in Gaza and specifically the attack on the Catholic compound as an act of terrorism and lamenting the loss of life. Now, the Times of Israel, however, has reported that the Israeli Defense Forces have denied that there was any attack, at least by them, on the Catholic parish in Gaza. They have said that they are extremely conscious about targeting civilians and particularly minority groups in Gaza. They have said that according to the information that they have, there was no such attack. So the implication there would be that if something happened at this parish, it wasn't them. And, you know, it's not entirely clear where that leaves us, but I think the clear takeaway has to be that this is another instance in which the Vatican and the Catholic leadership of the Holy Land and the Israelis have very different perceptions about what actually has happened and who is to blame. And the broader takeaway undoubtedly will be that this assault on the parish, or, or at least alleged, I guess, one has to say, assault on the parish, will probably strengthen the conviction of both the Vatican and also the bishops on the ground that the Israeli response to the Hamas attacks on October 7th is disproportionate and will strengthen the conviction that there is 
obviously a crying need for a kind of immediate cessation to hostilities. We're going to have to see how all this plays out. I mean, as we all know, truth is the first casualty in the fog of war. Clearly, the Catholic side and the Israeli side have different accounts of what happened here, and we're going to have to get to the bottom of it. But I think the immediate takeaway, simply, is that going forward, this chapter, this episode, is likely to make the Vatican even less amenable to the argument that what Israel is doing is a kind of morally justified exercise in self-defense. And that probably augurs additional tensions, additional fault lines in the analysis of this conflict that would be coming from Israel and more broadly, I suppose, international Judaism and the Vatican and the Catholic Church. Again, you know, here at Crux, we will have our eyes on this situation. I would add that my wife, Elise, who is our rock star Vatican correspondent, is going to be interviewing the Israeli ambassador to the Holy See this week. Hopefully, some additional clarification will come out of that conversation. All right, finally up this week, as I teased at the top of the show, you say it's your birthday. Pope Francis on Sunday celebrated his 87th birthday, born on December 17th. That makes him now the third oldest reigning pope in the history of the Catholic Church. Top honors go to Pope Leo XIII, who died in 1903 at the age of 93. After that, there is Pope Clement XII, who died at the age of 87 years and 10 months. So, if Pope Francis makes it to November, he would therefore become the second oldest pope in the history of the Catholic Church. And given that November would be just shortly after the close of Pope Francis's much ballyhooed, much anticipated final act of the Synod of Bishops on Synodality, I personally would not bet against him. Now, whether Pope Francis can make it another six years and surpass Leo XIII, I mean, you know, obviously, God only knows, we will have to see. But, you know, here's where we are in terms of the papal health front. On the one hand, Pope Francis is clearly getting better from the recent bout of acute bronchitis he suffered, and he canceled his trip to Dubai for the UN COP28 summit, and also to curtail many of his activities, including, and in, in on many occasions, asking someone else in public settings to read his addresses for him, confining himself to just giving a few brief remarks in his own voice. I mean, this past Sunday, for instance, he was able to deliver his noontime Angelus address as normal from the window of the papal apartment overlooking St. Peter's Square, the first time he'd been able to do that in a couple of weeks. And by all accounts, he is staging, once again, a kind of remarkable recovery and intends to preside over all of the normal Christmas and New Year's festivities in the Vatican. On the other hand, this past week, Pope Francis also gave an interview to Mexican television in which he acknowledged 
that despite his recovery, he has also made plans for his own funeral and burial. He has said that in terms of the funeral rite, he recently had a meeting with the Vatican's Master of Ceremonies in which he expressed his desire for a simplified funeral rite and also revealed his plans to be buried in Rome's Basilica of St. Mary Major. That is, the original basilica in Christendom dedicated to the Virgin, and a place where Pope Francis has a strong personal devotion. I mean, every time he makes an international trip, he goes to St. Mary Major beforehand to pray for the success of the trip, and then afterwards, he goes to St. Mary Major to sort of consecrate what has just happened to the Virgin. And so, that's going to be his eternal resting place, clearly a signal on the part of the pontiff that he understands that despite his remarkable resilience, despite his seemingly endless reservoirs of energy, you know, one day the end is going to come. A footnote, by the way, to the Pope indicating that he wants to be buried in St. Mary Major. Two interesting things about that. There are five other popes who were buried in St. Mary Major. One of them is Pope Pius V, who was the Pope who gave us the Tridentine Latin Mass, which Pope Francis, of course, has essentially suppressed. There is considerable irony that the two of them will be spending eternity cheek by jowl. And another Pope buried in St. Mary Major is Pope Sixtus V, who is known for his crackdowns on criminality in the Papal States, and his aggressive campaign of execution. Supposedly, over his relatively brief pontificate, he had executed, that is, he subjected to capital punishment, roughly 5,000 people. That's an average of 2.7 executions every day during the course of his papacy. Pope Francis is, of course, the pope who wrote an absolute ban on capital punishment into the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Ironies, ladies and gentlemen, abound. Bottom line, this is a pope who is once again staging a comeback and by all accounts is good to go. On the other hand, at 87 years of age, I think we all have to say absolutely anything can happen. And therefore, the only takeaway has to be stay tuned. All right, as ever, you will find full coverage of all of these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. A reminder. We are going to be off air the next two weeks for the holidays. We will see you again on Tuesday, January 9th in 2024. In the meantime, stay safe, stay, stay healthy. Have a fantastic and blessed holiday season, and we will talk to you again very, very soon.